standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. This, dear listener, is my full interview with journalist and documentary maker Jenny Kleeman about her astonishing debut non-fiction, Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. Five years in the writing, Jenny delves into new innovations in technology on the frontiers of sex, food, birth and death that will, in the future, change the way we live and die forever and, for now, haunt your waking hours. You are welcome. We talk about the impact these technologies will have on women, which, surprise, surprise, tends to be negative and also tends to outweigh any negative effect on men. I know, who'd have thought it? We also chat about some positive outcomes, as well as Terminator on the dark web and Jurassic Park. Just a heads up, when we're chatting about the birth biobags, we talk about a trans person Jenny interviewed, and I just want to make clear that their chosen pronouns are they, them, which is why we're using those. Sex Robots and Vegan Meat is an astonishing page-turner of a book. I genuinely couldn't put it down. Jenny is brilliantly engaging with a delightfully twisted sense of humour when it comes to the dystopia seemingly just around the corner. She's also pretty hopeful about the human race. Can she convince me to feel the same? Listen on, my friend. Listen on. I am joined on the phone by Jenny Kleeman, journalist, documentary maker and author of Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, a fascinating book that will uh, give you nightmares. Jenny, hello, and thank you for the sleepless <laughs> nights. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Sorry about those sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine how many sleepless nights you've had actually speaking to these people, but more on that later. The subtitle for Sex Robots and Vegan Meat is Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. And boy, do those frontiers read like science fiction. Can you tell us a bit more about how the book came about and the astonishing cutting-edge innovations that you've uncovered? So the book is divided into four sections, and it's about four inventions. Each one promises to redefine a kind of fundamental pillar of human existence, birth, food, sex and death. So sex is sex robots. What if you could have a partner designed to meet your every need? Food is about lab-grown meat. What if you could eat meat without any animal having to die? Birth is about ectogenesis, biobags, babies being incubated outside of the human body. What if you could have a baby without anyone being pregnant? And death is about euthanasia machines. What if you could have the perfect painless death at a time of your choosing? I kind of got the idea for this because the first thing that I started looking into was sex robots. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as a journalist, quite often... The best way to find stories is to see them being done in a way that you never would have done them and think, oh, they've completely missed the point. I saw a very, very small story on the BBC News website about this new campaign against sex robots, this feminist campaign against sex robots. And I thought, what is this? Surely the story is that sex robots exist and then you talk about the campaign. So I started investigating it. I spent a very, very long time trying to convince people who are making these things to let me in their factories and when I got the access that's how I began doing it but then yeah I, I wanted to do a, a kind of broader thing about how the fundamental elements of human existence how we're born how we live and how we die have always kind of been beyond our control until now but there are now new technologies coming together that promise us the perfect food the perfect sex the perfect birth the perfect death and what will happen if we kind of use technology to control our lives in that way? What will be the unexpected consequences of that? As you said, the book's divided into four sections, sex, food, birth and death. When I'm reading the book for an interview, I tend to take notes on my phone. And at one point, I've noted all in capital letters, I can't decide which section terrifies me the most. Uh, <laughs> did what you were uncovering frighten you? 
yes, not the bit that you might imagine, actually. For me, the most frightening thing was the birth section. Mm. And it was the kind of implications of artificial wombs, which are going to bring total equality in reproduction between men and women. So if women don't have to be pregnant for there to be babies, then men and women just provide the cells you need to get started and you can grow a baby and everyone can carry on with their business whilst the baby's growing and then the baby's born. And there are many positive reasons why you'd want to do this. But when I kind of was uncovering what the implications might be for women when we're no longer the baby carriers, that really, really terrified me. I couldn't agree more. I think the section for me on death is the least frightening and the, the <laughs> sex and birth were the ones which really put the fear of God that I don't believe in <laughs> up me. But neither of those have technology that bodes well for women. In fact, designed by men, but overwhelmingly impacting women, not in a positive way, is definitely a recurring outcome in these innovations you were looking at. Yes, all of them. And that's the crazy thing was I didn't, I didn't think I was going to write a kind of feminist book mm. uh, and uh, wasn't kind of looking for, I mean, obviously, if you're doing something about sex robots and artificial wombs, you're going to look at, you know, the impact they have on women. But then I found that even in the food section about lab-grown meat and even in the death section, these were innovations that are going to disproportionately affect women. In any country where assisted suicide is legal, Women choose it more than men do, even though suicide is much more of a male phenomenon. So these kinds of technologies are much more likely to affect women. And the overconsumption of meat, which is causing the problem that lab-grown meat is supposed to solve, is quite a male thing. Men eat a lot more meats than women do, and, mm -hmm. and the problems caused by industrial agriculture come from the male appetite for meat. So I found myself in the end writing a, writing a book about what happens when men with giant egos <laughs> try and leave a legacy, try and get famous by being the next Steve Jobs or something and inadvertently cause lots of problems that are going to affect women a lot more than men. Totally. The braggadocio and sense of self-belief in the men, and it is predominantly men that you talk to, is staggering. They're like carnival barkers in expensive suits. Yes, they are. <laughs> How did you keep a straight face with some of them? Well, I didn't have to keep a straight face. I mean, this is the, the beauty of interviewing people with giant egos is they really like to be interviewed. And even if it's slightly um, not going the way they wanted to, I mean, quite often I'd interview people and they'd be really happy to be interviewed at first. And then they'd be a bit annoyed mm. if I was pointing out things that might not be great about their technologies, because all of these innovations are supposedly there to solve problems and help people. Sex robots are supposed to provide companionship for lonely people who would otherwise never have human contact. Sure. Uh, Lab-grown meat is meant to save the planet. And as soon as someone comes along and says, you know, wouldn't it be better if a lonely person was encouraged to go out and meet human beings rather than given an expensive bit of kit to have sex with at home that always laughs at their jokes and is always up to sex? They, they, they don't want to hear that. But that in itself was revealing and worked for the book. There are a lot of advantages of not being a tech journalist so being able to ask very basic questions and also not worrying about messing up future relationships with people in the industry <laughs> and also just being a, being a woman and you know I think these people are used to boasting to male tech journalists and it was good to be be able to ask different questions I was kind of allowed to do that I guess in a way because I'm not the usual reporter that they're used to seeing. One of the bits that you did that was very telling, I mean, it's all very telling, but you actually interviewed the sex robot yeah. and you struggled. How, how do you make small talk with it? Particularly when she's, yeah. not, she's not geared up to respond to a woman. 
No, that's very true. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's very true. She, she's not geared up to have, you know, have a nice chat with the girls. No, uh, I found it very hard because a fundamental part of conversation is thinking about what the other person must be thinking and feeling. Empathy. And, you know, I, there was nothing to empathize with. So my mind went completely blank and I was being given this demonstration and her inventor was just so delighted with his creation and was saying, go on, ask her anything at all. And I just, my mind went totally blank. And I asked, at first I asked some pretty lame questions like, you know, uh, what do you like to do for fun? But she was able to answer pretty much anything. And in fact, I did ask her, I said, some people are pretty worried about people like you. What would you say to those people? And she said, some people might be worried at first. And, of course, she had a posh English accent to show that she's a clever <laughs> robot. Some people might be worried at first, but when they get to know me, they'll see that I'm a force for good and I'll change many lives for the better. So, you know, she was well-programmed. She could speak well. But I, I found it very, very, very strange and very uncomfortable talking to her. Do you think, obviously you cover this in the book, but do you think you did uncover any innovations that are actually a force for good? That's interesting. I think... There are applications for, well, apart from the death machine, there are possible positive applications for all of these things if we use them in a smart way. I mean, clearly, any device that's going to improve the chances of super premature babies surviving is going to be a good thing. So these biobags, which are, are artificial wombs, they are plastic bags filled with amniotic fluid through which... There are tubes that go into the, the fetus's umbilical cord that, that give the, the fetus nutrients and take away waste products. You know, those devices have the potential to save countless people from death and disability, from a lifetime of living with the consequences of being born premature. And of course, you can't really argue against that. But that's what makes it kind of dangerous technology in a way. Because once you frame something in terms of we are saving vulnerable babies. We are living in an imperfect world where what makes a baby vulnerable is up for debate. And in some parts of the world, vulnerable babies are the babies gestating inside women who take drugs or women who smoke or women who eat the wrong kind of cheese. Yeah. And we need to make sure that we're in a society that is equipped to, to deal with these questions where we can't kind of creep towards a world where people will say, you're not behaving in the right way. We need to remove your baby from inside you and grow it in a bag because you're an irresponsible mother. Yeah, I agree with you. That section is just utterly terrifying for women. I mean, it seemed like yeah. the easiest technology would just be, you know, slap an ankle bracelet on us, keep a track of where we're going and what we're doing. Well, exactly. And there are a lot of people who would like to do that. Yes. I, mean, I, I, I met some of them on the internet, very strange men who fantasize about a world without women who if there were sex robots they could have sex with and bags they could grow babies in it would mean women are obsolete and they don't have to have any contact with them and there are a small number of them but they're very vocal and mm. sometimes they they pop up in the real world in in really frightening ways so yeah i mean those bio bags have a positive application but they also have potentially a, a terrible application equally you know lab grown meat you could say that there's definitely a place for it because we need to find a solution to the fact that our appetite for meat is killing the planet and killing animals and killing us. But then again, there is another solution, which is we could just all eat less meat instead of going to all of this trouble. Yeah. So all of these, all of these inventions, they all kind of have this flip side, which is we could just, you know, compromise more in our relationships and not expect our partners to be perfect. 
we could just eat less meat, we could allow assisted dieting to be legal and we could make it easier for women to have babies and be pregnant. That's kind of what the book is about, the extent to which we rely on technology to provide solutions when we could just have the courage to reform ourselves and change our behaviour. Yes, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. Just to say on the meat section, and actually in pretty much all of the sections, you are a booger because I'm like, oh yeah, this sounds fine, this what? But with the the clean yeah. clean meat in inverted commas, I was like, well, how can this be bad? Oh, they use FBS fetal bovine serum. <laughs> FBS fetal bovine serum, yeah. Although although they're trying to get away from it, but yes. So the the, the vegan meat in the title comes from the idea that this lab-grown meat industry, the clean meat industry, is run by vegans and funded by vegan billionaires. And they all keep it pretty quiet that they're vegan. But it comes from this tacit understanding that the animal rights argument in veganism has failed to convince people. And if we can tell people that meat is bad for you and bad for the planet, people are much more likely to switch and become vegan than if you show them, you know, horrible videos taken in abattoirs. And yeah, it's meant to be the most ethical way of eating meat. It's, you know, promoted by vegans and created by vegans. And then you realise actually the medium, that, which is the kind of fluid that the cells taken from animals is grown in to make them kind of multiply and proliferate. Traditionally, this stuff, this liquid is like the least vegan substance on earth uh-huh. because it is, it's fetal bovine serum. It comes from the beating heart of embryos of calves whose mothers are dying in the abattoir they plunge a needle into their beating hearts and withdraw this serum which they then um, grow cells in and, and whilst these companies have found alternatives to serum to, to this particular kind of fetal bovine serum um, nothing's really quite as good so the entire industry is has been dependent on and has been developed through possibly the most disgusting cruel substance you can ever think of it's crazy isn't it because the, the fact that they're saying that us the consumers of meat i mean i'm a vegetarian but us the consumers of meat have this cognitive dissonance in where our meat comes from which means that we will keep yeah. eating meat and yet the irony yeah. of them having this massive cognitive dissonance because not only are they using this serum even though they're trying to get away from it but they've got an eye on selling all this to the big meat industries yes and that's the big thing. So when, when I started writing that section, I genuinely didn't know where it would go. And I had this meeting with this man who's evangelical for the industry called Bruce, who was so impressive and was so kind of earnest. I met him and I thought, maybe I'm going to write something really positive. Maybe I've, I've just been in the presence of a Nobel Prize winner, a future Nobel Prize winner, because this is amazing. This sounds really amazing. But then the more I unpeeled it, the more I realised that actually it depends on some quite dodgy technology, or rather it was born out of some quite dodgy technology. But that also all of these companies are really trying to get investment from major meat companies who have a terrible track record when it comes to animal rights and human rights. I mean, these are companies who are running all the factories where uh, everybody's getting COVID at the moment because they're all, you know, crammed next to each other. The meat industry is an incredibly unethical industry by definition. So these kind of vegan entrepreneurs in their pursuit of, um, you know, scaling up this thing are asking some of the least ethical people uh, to invest in them. And what's probably going to happen if you look at what happens with other startups that get bought out is this technology is ultimately going to belong to the meat industry. Mm -hmm. So in the future where we still eat meat, but it's completely taboo to kill animals, uh, we're going to be really, really dependent on these 
very faceless corporations who are really only really concerned about making money, whereas in the past you could raise a few chickens and, and, and have a chicken yourself. If this happens, then in the future, we're just going to be even further removed from the source of our meat than we are now. And also, I've got to ask you, have you managed to get the taste of that lab-grown chicken nugget out of your mouth yet? (laughs) (laughs) It was a really disgusting thing, because it wasn't the taste that was the problem, because it tasted like chicken. It was, the texture was just completely wrong. Because at the moment, you know, you imagine growing meat in a lab, and you imagine, I don't know, a piece of meat, a piece of steak, a piece of chicken, and they're not growing tissues. They are like cloning cells, cultivating cells. So I ate this priceless chicken nugget with all these PR people staring at me and smiling, <laughs> saying, doesn't it taste like chicken? It's like, yes, it tastes like chicken, but it has the texture of the most low-grade processed food. It was like mushy mash. It was completely disgusting. And genuinely, I couldn't eat meat for a very long time after I ate that chicken nugget because it might, it's the sort of thing where, especially with meat, if it doesn't feel right in your mouth, you have this kind of evolutionary response where your brain says, spit that out that is bad it's going to make you sick Uh, I didn't spit it out in the name of journalism I ate it all and (laughs) and had no further problems but yeah I have I've only just managed to to wash the the taste of that away maybe that's how it works (laughs) they they just occasionally feed us a bit of that and then we're like no 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 no, yeah exactly I mean I I would I I would there was a point where I was considering going vegan after all for, for all the wrong reasons So you interviewed a sex robot, you ate a priceless lab-grown chicken nugget, you watched fetuses grown in plastic bags and you attended members-only meetings where people learn how to kill themselves with suicide kits. Yeah. So it's a big question, but what surprised you the most during your investigations? Oh, gosh. I was surprised all the time. Always, it's the ordinary people who surprise me most, not the big flashy people who are putting on performances and showing me their amazing inventions. I interviewed a trans person who has written in the past about how much they mourn the fact that they'll never be a mother and they'll never be pregnant and give birth. And I was really surprised to hear them talk about what they felt they lacked because they could never gestate their own baby. And I was so surprised to hear them describe so much of what I feel about being a mother as somebody who's had a baby myself, had had two children myself. That really surprised me. Mm, They're incredibly sympathetic, aren't they? The way they think about stuff. so so beautifully put and and they said you know it you know i went to the paralympics if you can see people winning and running using prosthesis why can't we use artificial wounds and it really made me see things in a different way gosh where to begin with things that surprised me i was surprised to discover that the man who runs the premier sex doll factory in the world had sculpted one of the very few male (laughs) sex robots that he makes to look exactly like him and when I asked him, you know, there's a sex doll that looks just like you. And he said, oh, it doesn't look, it doesn't look like me. And I said, it, it really looks a lot like you. And I said, you know, are you happy that people are going to buy something and have sex with it? And it has your face. And he was really quite annoyed at being asked about that. But that surprised me that anyone would want to do that. There were all, you know, there were surprises at every single turn. And I never got what I was, what I thought I was going to get, which is why writing this book was such a joy, because it was a genuine journey of discovery a genuine adventure 
And it's an adventure to read. It really is, because as much as it absolutely scared the shit out of me, I was, <laughs> just could not stop turning those pages. And I don't think my eyes have oh, ever been you. that wide open. Because it's, <laughs> it's funny. It's funny if they weren't trying to make it true. There is a, there's an absurdity about all mm. of this that comes from just very simple, basic questions like, you know, shouldn't we all just be eating less meat? Or are you really married to your sex doll? Or all of that <laughs> stuff, which... And it was nice because I have quite a twisted sense of humour, uh, and it was nice to actually to actually be able to share it with other people. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad I'm glad you found it funny because I wasn't sure if anyone would. <laughs> There's a real Jurassic Park feel, though, isn't there? It's, it's you know, it's Jeff Goldblum. Yes. It's like you know, we can do this, but have you stopped to think whether we should? Absolutely, and I haven't thought about that, but it's it's a lot like Jurassic Park. And this is the way that we look at technology as this fantastic, shiny new thing that's mm. going to do something great, and you know, nobody really wants to ask the questions of oh, what else is it going to do, and uh, do we actually want this? It's exactly like that, and it's you know we we look at technology in this way that it's it's so exciting and beguiling, and I think that's because we're used to science fiction movies. It's either exciting and beguiling or it's the Terminator. There's nothing in between, which is this kind of what are the slow, worrying ways that it could change us. And for me, the big thing has been the iPhone. The iPhone was launched in 2007. When it was launched. Even Steve Jobs had no idea how successful it would be. And the extent to which we are all dependent on our smartphones and that if your phone is, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, you know, if my phone is being repaired or, you know, I'm constantly, there's something in the back of my head always saying, oh, where's my phone? Where's my phone? But it is the external organ that you can't live without. Mm. And nobody could have ever ever predicted that. And if, if a phone can change the way human beings interact so much, then... God knows what will happen when we use technology to change the fundamental elements that make us who we are. I think you're exactly right. And on all of these things that are played out on the big screen that we've seen as fiction, I mean, there was no spin-off of someone using the Terminator as a sex robot, but you know damn well it would have happened. <laughs> you know it would have. You know it would have. I mean, there are probably some spin-offs in some dark parts of the oh, internet yeah. that we haven't visited. There's a new yeah. book for you. One thing that's really it's really depressing, because it's, it's frightening about the future, but it's also, I think, frightening about us now, because there's a, a striking sense of us and them at play in every single section. Money and power are, you know, surprise, surprise, mm. the big players here. And the yeah. question that I ask, probably on a daily basis, is... Is there a level of money and power that just, it just wipes out any humanity? Well, I, there is, but you have to remember, ultimately, we have the choice of whether or not we want to buy it. We have the choice of where we put our money. We have a choice of whether or not we accept the idea that these kinds of technologies are going to save us. Or whether or not we're prepared to do the, the slightly harder work of changing our own behaviour. That's kind of what I say at the end of all of it is mm. that, you know, the freedom and power offered by all of these things, they're already in our hands. We just have to be slightly less lazy <laughs> and say, no, I'm going to change. I'm going to make things better. I'm going to lobby for change and I'm going to connect with people on a genuine level and create the world that I want to live in without relying on these tools that I don't really need. I mean, we're constantly being sold things that we don't really need, that you think are vital, but you could just do without any technology at all. Like the rise of meditation apps. I know they're helpful, but you could just meditate. Or, you know, at the moment, we're living in a world where there is an epidemic of insomnia and sleeplessness and sales of melatonin pills, certainly in America, they've gone through the roof, these hormones that will make you sleepy because everybody's addicted to kind of looking at their phones, which means that they have all this blue light and they can't go to sleep. You know, 
we could just put our phones down and we don't need these pills. But we're constantly being sold kind of different orders of magnitude of, of solutions to problems caused by technology. And we could just change our behaviour. You do end on that note of hope. And I've become more and more suspicious of hope. But, you know, I'm trying not to be. <laughs> <laughs> are you genuinely hopeful? I think human beings are amazing and have incredible capacity for change and resilience. Just look at you know, the way everyone has adapted their behaviour during lockdown. Yeah. You know, if a year ago you would have said, you know, we're all going to do this and we're all going to pull together for each other. Some of us are, are not really likely to suffer badly if we do get this, this illness, but still we're going to do this. And we're going to wear masks that won't protect us, but they will stop us from making other people ill. And we're going to stay at home. You wouldn't have believed it a year ago, but actually it is possible. And human beings are amazing and we can be altruistic. We really can. I think the the system of capitalism that we live in depends on being quite cynical and seeing us all as selfish people who only care about ourselves and have an insatiable appetite for everything that we're greedy and actually i think most people are are not greedy actually and most people do care about other people we're just being sold a version of ourselves that perhaps isn't quite true so i am hopeful i am also cynical and sceptical, which is what makes it such a delight to puncture the dabblingness of these technologies. But I do think human beings are incredible, resourceful, adaptable, resilient, and generally good creatures, and that we can make the changes we need without these kinds of technologies. Oh, Jenny, I just need to, you know, maybe phone you every week instead of hanging out on Twitter. (laughs) Um, It's interesting you said about puncturing the dazzlingness of these innovations, because A tiny spoiler in that no functional versions of the inventions that you investigate are on the market yet. And they actually appear to be a lot further away from that than the designers and investors would have us believe. You just did a well. Has something come out? Well, yes. So so actually, you know, it takes a long time to write a book. And uh, I think the sex robots, in one form or another, are certainly on the market. You can buy some really bad ones, which are basically (laughs) like talking to, if if you put, Siri or Alexa inside a very, you know, expensive dummy, that would be your sex robot. Those certainly exist, but I think actually Abyss Creation's first model of Harmony is on the market. There's a kind of head that talks and moves and moans. I think you can buy her now. So, yes, uh, most of these things aren't properly on the market. I think lab-grown meat will be on the market soon. The question of whether or not they can produce something that's as cheap as or cheaper than meat and is indistinguishable from meat grown in an animal, that will probably be within the next five years. Uh, the 3D, 3D printed desk machine, um, that can exist now, but it's, I know, uh, <laughs> but it's not properly on the market yet. That's probably within about 10 years. And growing babies in bags, it will be possibly in use in hospitals within the next five years but as a kind of commercial product I think we're talking about or a full replacement for pregnancy I mean that will be in in a generation or so I'd say but all of these things are going to exist because there's a real commercial pressure for them to exist because they promise really beguiling solutions for all of us it's just we have to prepare ourselves before they come onto the market and ask those questions about whether or not we want them and if so for what purpose I feel like it's a big ask for society, but I'm going to re-listen to what you said and try and channel some of that hope about us being decent human (laughs) beings. (laughs) So obviously that took five years of your life for you to write Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. What are you working on now? 
Good question. Well, I've always got my fingers in lots of pies, like any freelance journalist. I am actually presenting the breakfast show on the new Times radio station on Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. That's exciting. So that keeps me busy. It is exciting. It's from 6 till 10 a.m. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we, we did it last week and I didn't die with all those ridiculous hours. So um, <laughs> so that's that's good. But I'm working on lots of weird and wonderful stories, trying to work out what my next move will be. I mean, it's been such a joy to hear that that people have enjoyed this book um, because I actually you know everyone talks about how happy they are to finish their first draft I was sad when I put the last full stop on I was sad because it was just such a pleasure to write and so uh, hopefully I'll get to do more in, in, in a similar vein I just need to find out which things to look into next well, I would happily let you scare the living daylights out of me about the future at any time. Oh, well, Mickey, it would be my pleasure. <laughs> and it's worth noting that actually when we're talking, happy publication day. Thank you. It's a really, really exciting time for me. It's been a, a long, long time. Especially if you're a journalist and you're used to like writing stuff or making a documentary and then it going out. It takes a very long time for a book to come out, but it's worth it. It's an amazing thing to hold your first book in your hands. So thank you. Congratulations. And where can people find out more about you, please? Uh, well, I've got a website, jennycleman.com, which has bits of pieces of my writing, clips of documentaries that I've made. And I'm on Twitter, at Jenny Kleeman. Contact me there. And uh, yeah, I would love to hear from people, particularly people who've, who've, who've read the book, would love to hear your thoughts. Jenny, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Standard issue for all women.